Let's pray together as we come before God and his word. Father, we thank you that as we uh, turn our attention to the scriptures, we turn our attention to Jesus, that you have promised that you will be with us. Uh, that in the Holy Spirit we know that you are here. We, we have not been left as orphans, because for you have said you will never leave us nor forsake us. And so teach us uh, what it means to be disciples of Jesus today. Open our hearts, particularly as uh, we may be far from you, uh, that we might know you, we might trust in you, and that we might be filled with all of your goodness and love. We might live for your glory. Please speak to us now uh, through your scriptures, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we continue our series through the book of Matthew, we're getting very close to uh, Jesus' death and his eventual resurrection. And we're actually uh, now at the night before, the night before Jesus' death. And there's a lot of stuff that happens uh, on the night before. And it really seems to me that it is a testing of the disciples. It's a sorting out of, you know, who will actually stick with him and who won't. And so this morning, I want us to see uh, what it means to be a disciple through these four tests. The first is the test of betrayal, which we see in Judas. The second is the test of forgiveness, which we see in uh, the institution of the Lord's Supper or communion, which we'll take part in just after the sermon today. Uh, The third we see in denial. And even Jesus' most trusted friend, the sort of leader of the other disciples, Peter, Jesus says will deny him three times. And finally, we will see the test of God's grace. So, beginning with number one, the test of betrayal to be a disciple of Jesus. So, let's ask ourselves, what does it mean to betray Jesus? This is a big deal, right? When you are betrayed by someone, it is someone you know, it's someone you perhaps even love, and yet they do something to you where they say your relationship with them means nothing. In fact, the way I've defined it, it, uh, particularly in betraying Jesus, it is where your relationship with him gets in the way of something else. When your relationship with God gets in the way of something else that you really want. That is what it means to betray Jesus. Now, we see this in Judas. Judas is uh, the one who most people recognise, is the one who betrayed Jesus and he was plotting and scheming to do so. He was the the accountant for the band of disciples or the CFO, if you want to use the business language. Jesus had this guy running his books, right? This was Judas. He used to take a little bit on the side and he got a bit upset when um, uh, a woman sort of poured out some very expensive perfume uh, upon Jesus, preparing him for burial. And so very soon after that, uh, Judas's greed got the better, for, better of him and he realised that trusting in Jesus was a roadblock to what he really wanted, which was money. 
He'd found a way to secure a regular income source from those that were providing for Jesus and his disciples, and he was taking a bit of a cut on the side. So Judas was willing to betray Jesus in a premeditated way. In fact, it says in the other Gospels that Satan entered Judas. He was so willing to go up against God to betray Jesus that Satan himself entered Judas. But it also reveals that there was something else actually going on behind uh, the sin of greed and betrayal because greed was, you know, identifying what Judas really wanted. He wanted money. And, you know, that led to the sin of betrayal, so, you know, leading to uh, Jesus' arrest and promising to some of the uh, religious leaders that he would make a way for Jesus to be uh, taken. But underneath that, it reveals something else. And the heart of betrayal is not greed, and it is not even the betrayal itself, but it's actually unbelief. You see, Judas really didn't ever believe in Jesus. He may have even thought that he did at various times, but he was really there for himself and what he could get out of his relationship to Jesus. Now, this is a really stark point for us. Why are you here today? What is your purpose for calling yourself Christian or religious? And and I'm not saying that everyone does today, but why are you here? Are you here to get something out of God? Are you here because there's something else that you really want? And so, it will be inevitable, actually, that if Jesus himself gets in the way of you getting what you really want, then you will toss that relationship aside because you truly don't believe or trust in him. Or if you want to put that in the positive, you know that you truly believe in God and you know that you are a Christian when it's not about you and what you can get anymore, but it's just about him. It's just about him. And it wasn't the case for Judas. Now, there's a couple of types of betrayal uh, that we see. There's kind of a more general betrayal uh, of humanity as a whole before God. And we really see that in the Garden of Eden. Uh, Many of you know that in the um, beginning book of the Bible, Genesis, in the first sort of three chapters, it lays out God's relationship uh, with his creation and his relationship with the sort of highest point of his creation, people, humanity. And God loves humanity. He created this world that we might develop and cultivate it and create culture and society and infrastructure. He told us to go and do it and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. God loves and treasures his people. And yet it was in Genesis chapter 3 where there was a moment of betrayal of that relationship. When Adam and Eve said, no, we'll do stuff our own way, our relationship with you is getting in the way of what we really want. And it was something so simple. You know, it was a bit of tasty fruit, but because they couldn't, it was the one thing they said, don't take of the fruit, that their relationship with God got in the way. And that same hard attitude has been passed on to all of humanity. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so, actually, 
in a general sense, all of humanity is bound up in this betrayal of our relationship with God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that's the first type of betrayal. The second is more specific and personal. This is what we see in Judas. He spent time with Jesus. He knew Jesus. Jesus told him that he was going to die to save Judas from his sins and Judas said, I want something else more than you. This is where it's personal, it's specific. The Bible, so the, like theologians use a technical term, apostasy. This is knowing or tasting in the truth of God and saying, I don't want it. Other things are more important to me. This text also tells us that Jesus knows who will betray him and their words will self-condemn. You see, when Jesus uh, was at this Passover uh, feast, which is the, a Jewish festival that represented how God had passed over the sins of his people as they uh, were coming out of Egypt and he was going to judge the nation of Egypt. Uh, but there was a lamb that was sacrificed, the blood that was put over the lintel and the, the, the doorposts in order to save them. Uh, it was at that moment that Jesus said these words. He said, truly, verse 21, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. So not only is betrayal sort of like a personal offence against Jesus and saying, I want something else more than my relationship with you, but Jesus knows it. He knows what's in our hearts. And notice that Judas had it in his heart to do it, but he hadn't done it yet. That's a really important point. So at this point, uh, if, if you read um, across the different Gospels, we know that Satan had entered in to Judas's heart at this point, but he hadn't actually betrayed Jesus physically. And yet Jesus knew. And so this tells us that Jesus knows what's in your heart. He knows that you're really in it for something else if you're going to betray him. He knows that there's actually some other greater goal, whether it be a relationship that you really want, whether it be, you know, money, whether it be success, whether it be just, you know, the very simple things. I mean, I mean Adam and Eve got caught up with a piece of fruit, you know, whether it just be sex or money or power, you know, the three big things that we seem to be so attracted to, you know, status before others. There's, if there's something that you really want and God's going to get in the way Jesus knows. He said before his disciples, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And I want you to notice something else is that, you know, they go around the group and they say, is it I, Lord? Is it I? You know, all of the 12 disciples, is it I? They, they want to know, like, is it me? Which is interesting, actually, when you think about that, that they would all actually consider, hey, did, like, could I be the one? There was a humility amongst the disciples thinking, it could happen to me. Is it I, Lord? Notice they weren't accusing each other either. They weren't saying, oh, I reckon it's Judas, or no, Peter's actually a bit dodgy, or John, or James, or, you know, Thomas, you know, he's going to doubt later. No. They had the humility to say, is it I, Lord? Which is actually a really 
important facet of this that perhaps often gets overlooked. It is a good thing to go examine our hearts and go, am I really in this for God or am I in this for myself? Because there's still a way out at this point. There's still a way out. But notice uh, verse 25 says, Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? You notice he doesn't use the same words. The other said, is it I, Lord? And Judas says, is it I, Rabbi? Now, Rabbi is a term of endearment. means teacher. You know, rabbis were the teachers and the disciples were the followers in that uh, day and age. There would, be, there would have been many rabbis. But Judas cannot call him Lord. I want you to notice that. Judas cannot call Jesus Lord, because of what he's about to do, because of what's in his heart. And there's another mark of someone who, in their heart, has already betrayed Jesus. You cannot call him Lord, truly. He might be teacher. He might be a figure of importance in history. He might be someone that, you know, the, this idea is about have been passed on by family or friends. It might be, you know, something that you, who was worshipped at these events that you attend, different times during the year and yet in your heart of hearts you cannot call him Lord because he is truly not your Lord. And so this morning, this test of a disciple, we must ask ourselves the question, like the disciples did in humility, is it I, Lord? Is it I? Because Jesus knows and there's still a way out. At this point, there's still a way out for those who would truly humble themselves before him. So that is the test of betrayal. Second test of a disciple is the test of forgiveness. Now, there's this wonderful depth to forgiveness in Christianity. A wonderful depth to it. I mean, we actually see it in verses 26 to 29. Jesus is instituting a, a new um, rite or, or, or a new ceremony that the disciples of Jesus will take part in from that day forth unto this day and until he returns in glory, remembering what Jesus has done through taking bread and eating wine. Representing, of course, the bread representing Jesus' uh, body, which was given for us in our place. So rather than us dying for our own sins, Jesus will die for our sins Therefore, we can have eternal life with him. You know, rather than our blood being spilled for our sins, Jesus' blood is spilled for our sins. Therefore, it's cleansed and taken away. God will accept us on the basis of what Jesus has done. It's the true and costly forgiveness that is on offer. I was having a chat. I'm selling my mum's car at the moment. And um, any of you know that you're trying to sell a car privately through sort of market, Facebook marketplace or Gumtree, know that sort of people sort of say they're going to come and they don't come. My wife knows this very much because we've had many people say they'll come and then they don't turn up to a house. Anyway, I've had uh, various different people turn up and uh, this week had a couple of guys uh, come. Uh, their names were Abdul and Abdullah, they're uh, brothers from Saudi and uh, sort of asked them sort of what was their religious belief and were they practising and they said, yeah, they were practising... Muslims, and uh, we just, and just note, um, 
if you have any Muslim friends, they generally love to talk about religion. They're just open to it, which is just a wonderful thing. So anyway, we're going on talking about, so, you know, like exploring the differences between Christianity. I said, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian and uh, I'm a practicing Christian as well and you know, this is what I believe and I'm saying what they believe. And uh, We got to the question of sin. And I said, so how do you know that your sins are forgiven by God? You know, like, like uh, when, you know, because they believe that uh, Jesus, whom they call Issa, will come to judge the world in righteousness. And I said, okay, so if Jesus is coming to judge, which I actually agree with, if Jesus is coming to judge, then uh, how can he forgive your sins? And they go, well, they say, God is merciful. They say, God is more merciful than even your mother is, as is the teaching of, of Islam. And so uh, the idea of God being merciful is that he will forgive you your, your, of your sins if you ask for it. And I was being a bit cheeky and I said, so what happens if you get hit by a bus and you haven't asked for forgiveness for the sins that you just did five minutes before? And they said, oh, look, it'll, it'll work out eventually. They're not very clear on that one. Um, but then I asked, I asked, well, who pays? I said, in any uh, form of justice, someone pays. You know, the idea of you do the crime and you pay the time. You know, so in, in, in every justice system, Everywhere around the world, you do a crime, there's a consequence, right? And though a judge may be somewhat merciful to you when reducing the sentence, there is still something that must be paid. And I said, what about all of the sins for your whole life? How can God just forgive those without someone paying for it? How does that work? And of course, if you're a Muslim, you have to, you're supposed to pray five times a day. And if you don't, that's a sin. So if you miss, if you get four out of five, that's a strike against your name. I said, so you have got this big, long list of sins for, for not doing the things you should have done, and Islam's pretty strict. And you've got, you know, and all the things that you shouldn't have done that you did do. You've got this huge list, a ledger, filled with all of these sins. Who's going to pay? He didn't have an answer. And so that's the difference in Christianity. God steps into humanity, becomes a man, and says, I will clear your ledger by paying it myself. God says, I will pay. And so we know that he is a God of justice. We know and we agree that Jesus will return to judge the earth, but he will return with scars in his hands and a scar on his side that reflects he has paid the penalty for sin for those who believe in him. And there is assurance when we believe and trust in Jesus, the Son of God and the Christ and Lord of all, that he was willing to pay for our sins. And this is a deep and costly forgiveness that Jesus offers to those who will come to him. It also demonstrates that God really loves us. You know, there might be mercy greater than your mother, but is there mercy that would extend to take the very thing that would separate you from God on himself? That is what Jesus did. Getting and understanding this forgiveness is what Jesus set, uh, made a big point of that the disciples would know and understand through creating this institution of the Lord's Supper or communion. That's why we do it so regularly. 
as Christians because we need to remember it. We need to get how important forgiveness is that Jesus has cleared the ledger. One of the striking things, though, in the Bible is that there is forgiveness for some, but not others. There is forgiveness for those who would put their trust and faith in Jesus, repent. But for those who refuse to, there is no forgiveness. We might think that that is unjust, but actually I think this is well explained by a character in uh, The Lord of the Rings called Saruman. If you're familiar with uh, The Lord of the Rings, Saruman is like the, at the beginning of the book, he's like the chief good wizard who's willing to take up the fight against the chief bad guy, Sauron. But he turns sides. He betrays his side, actually, partway through. He's kind of the Judas figure in uh, the books, The Lord of the Rings. At the end of the book, so in in the last book, The Return of the King, uh, we see this evil but defeated wizard Saruman because the good guys win in The Lord of the Rings. And yet there's this, this betrayer, Saruman, is still going around. He's still looking for, to get evil back into uh, the society and culture. He's, a, of course, a shadow of his former power. And we find him just walking down the road with his servant, Wormtongue. The new king, Aragorn, and his whole company of people, having won this great victory over the evil power in the world, find Saruman and actually meet on the same road. King Aragorn offers Saruman his mercy and freedom. The problem is Saruman is so twisted that he doesn't trust the king. He is bitter. Saruman is bitter that his life hasn't worked out according to plan. He is bitter that he's not as important as what he once thought. And so even though for all the evil that he's done, for the betrayal and the death that he has caused... Even in that, the wise and merciful king, Aragorn, offers him mercy and forgiveness and Saruman will not take it. He will not receive it because he is so embittered at what he has lost. What does this tell us? This tells us there is no forgiveness for Judas because Judas's heart won't receive it. That's why Jesus says in verse 24, The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. What striking words, but truthful words that we need to hear from Jesus. Those that have betrayal in their heart and will go through with it, There is no forgiveness because they have self-chosen a path of self-destruction. And that is what happened to Judas. He could not call him Lord. And so that's where he went. But there is, of course, forgiveness for those who turn to Christ, for those who humble themselves before his throne of grace. The Bible is filled with people who have done evil things. And if we're honest, we all have in thought, word, and deed. The Bible is full, and the world is full, of people who have done many things, 
and yet have found forgiveness and grace in Jesus Christ as they have asked him for that forgiveness and called upon him as Lord. We know this because of this great meal of bread and wine that we're about to share in later today. This meal which represents the depths of love, the cost of forgiveness that Jesus was willing to go to, to have all of our sins laid upon himself, that he will return in glory to judge the living and the dead and he will have scars on his hands. And he is great and merciful as our king. So we've had the test of betrayal, the test of forgiveness and the depth of it. Now we come thirdly to the test of denial. How can denial happen to a disciple of Jesus? Well, let's have a look at our text and let's examine it. Firstly, it happens to those who earnestly believe it won't happen to them. Let me say that again. The people who deny Jesus are the ones who earnestly believe it won't happen to them. Now, this is different to betrayal. But we see this in Peter. Peter was convinced, as were the other disciples, that, that they would never deny Jesus, that they would never fall away, even at the cost of their own life. They would never deny Jesus. You know, they had a moment of humility going, is it I, Lord, when it came to betraying Jesus? But they said, no, we'd never deny you. We'd never say we're not one of your people. I was, um, uh, I met a guy some years ago and he was sort of like a really encouraging young guy. He was um, uh, like an up-and-coming leader in his church. Uh, he was looking at, uh, he was planning to go to Bible college in the, in the next year or so. So he was looking at training for, for ministry um, was really eager to serve God, you know, knew the Bible, loved to pray and sort of seemed on the outside to be someone who truly loved and would worship and honour God. And yet six months later, I heard about this guy. He was out drinking every night at nightclubs. He'd left his wife and found another girlfriend and he'd totally done a 180. Just flipped on the other way. And I thought, wow, how can this happen? How can this happen? And it even happens to those who are absolutely convinced it will never happen to them. That's the first thing. The second thing is that denial actually arises out of fear. Denial of Jesus and knowing him when you say, when you're put on the spot, that you're a Christian, do you know Jesus? And you say no, it's because of fear. Jesus says that Peter will deny him in the text. And we, as we look further forward, we see that uh, you know, Peter was put under pressure. You know, Jesus had been arrested and it looks like he was going to be killed and Peter was thinking, I'm next. And so it was out of a state of fear that Peter denied Jesus. The third thing we learn about denial happening to a disciple is it can be an extreme denial. Notice Jesus doesn't just say, Peter, you'll deny me. He says in verse 34, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster cries, you'll deny me three times. 
Now, when things happen in threes in the Bible, it means it's a sense of completeness or a total denial. Jesus is saying that this very night, when you have said that you would never do it, that you would even die before you would deny me, this very night, before the rooster crows as the sun comes up, of course, you will deny me three times. You will deny me completely. So notice that just as Peter's profession that he would never deny Jesus was full and sincere, so too his denial of Jesus was full and sincere. So denial can happen. Notice in the uh, text that uh, denial is followed by grief. We actually don't get it uh, in our text for today, but we do learn later on that denial is followed by grief. Peter, it says, wept bitterly after he denied Jesus three times and he heard the rooster crow. After he was caught up in fear that very night that he too might be crucified, he too might be arrested and put on trial. But as the rooster crowed and he remembered, he said he wept bitterly. And so denial is followed by grief. It's interesting as well because we actually see this uh, later on, uh, and particularly in Luke's Gospel. There's also a corporate grief that came upon the people after Jesus' death on the cross. It says in Luke's Gospel, after Jesus died and he cried out, you know, using those uh, famous words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? After Jesus gave up his spirit under, in his own time, when he decided, Jesus allowed himself to die, it says that the people left beating their breasts because they knew that something wrong had happened that day. Even though just hours before, they would have been crying out with the, you know, the, the inflamed crowds, crucify him, crucify him. They got thrilled in the moment that they would put to death the Christ and their Saviour. And yet when they saw it happen, they had the same moment that Peter had. The moment when the rooster crowed and they realised something wrong, something evil has happened here. And they went away beating their breasts, it says. For they knew that they had taken part in the denial of the Son of God. The truth, though, is that Jesus hung on that cross because though he knew, and it says here that I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered, Jesus knew it was going to happen. Even though that his people would deny him, even his closest 12, even the closest one to him, Peter, and his friends, James and John, even that they would all deny him. We know that Jesus went to the cross because he would not deny his people. That Jesus would not forsake them. Jesus would rather be forsaken by God than not die. And so we see the reverse of betrayal in Jesus, don't we? Betrayal is 
saying, I want something more than God and so I'll throw the relationship aside. But in Jesus, we see that all he wants is the glory of his Father. And so he will do whatever it takes to receive that great glory by becoming obedient even unto death, even death on a cross, the most humiliating death they could come up with in the first century. That is what Jesus endured. He took the unbelievable weight of the sins of the world upon himself. The fullness of God's wrath was poured out upon Jesus. Why would he go through that? Because he is utterly committed to his people. He will not deny them. He will not deny them. Even if they deny him, he will not deny them. That is the commitment we see on the cross. You want to see commitment? Think of the cross. It is utter commitment that Jesus has for his people. And so denial can actually happen to anyone. When we realise that we're overcome with grief, And yet the Bible tells us that godly grief leads to repentance. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 says, For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. In Luke uh, 23, so so the the, the parallel uh, picture in um, Luke's Gospel, we see that just just after the rooster crowed, There was this moment where Jesus and Peter could see one another. And Jesus looked at Peter. And that is when it said Peter wept bitterly. You see, Jesus knew, though he wouldn't have been able to hear audibly the conversations that were going on as he was being arrested and under trial and awaiting further unjust courts, He knew what was going on in Peter's heart. He looked at him. And so let me say this, that even if no one else sees your denial of of Jesus, Jesus sees it. And what happened? It produced godly grief in Peter's heart. And so yes, if you deny Jesus, you should be grieved. You should be grieved to repentance. And notice there is something special about godly grief that leads to repentance. It leads to a life, what does that text say? To salvation without regret. That is unique. No regret. And we actually see this in Peter. I mean, Peter's the guy who denied Jesus three times. And yet he's the leader. As after Jesus restores him. Peter experiences salvation without regret. It's just a test, just a testify of the grace of God. We see the same in the Apostle Paul. He was imprisoning and breathing out threats of murder, the Bible tells us, to kill Christians. He was totally opposed to Jesus. And Jesus said, like, why are you doing this? What are you doing to me? Jesus took it personally. And the Apostle Paul preached that sermon of his testimony of how evil and wrong he had been 
and how good and gracious God had been. Why? Because he experienced a salvation that was without regret. And so let me say this, if you have regret in your life, if you have regret for the sins, for the evil that you've done in thought, word and action, there is a salvation on offer that is without regret for you. But you must go through the path of godly grief that leads to repentance. It may well be that you have not asked God's forgiveness for those things that you have done. And yet there is on offer a life that will say, yes, that happened. But all the more that God's grace would abound in my life because Jesus has cleared my ledger. He has paid my debts. It is finished. And so you will be someone who is filled with joy. And there is an alternative, of course, on the table. There is a worldly grief. There is a feeling of sadness, not because you sinned against God, but because of the consequences of your actions. You might feel bad because you've done wrong things, but generally, if it is a worldly grief, you will feel bad because of you've, you've done wrong things because of the consequences that have happened to you. You don't really care about God and how it's offended Him, about how you've broken relationship with Him, about perhaps how you've thought of betraying Him or you have betrayed Him. No, it's just about you're feeling the consequences of your actions. And that sort of grief, the Bible tells us, produces death. There is no good end to that grief. It is, it is a life filled with regrets. Not a salvation without regret. It is a life filled with regret. So let me say this to you. Don't do that. Don't feel bad just for the consequences of what you've done. Turn to Jesus. Repentance is turning to Jesus and saying, I need your forgiveness. I need what you've done for me. I need you to cleanse and wash me anew. And he will do it. And you will experience the truth of salvation without regret. And some of you know this to be intellectually true. And you still have many regrets in your life. Let me say this. Examine your heart before God. Bring it to him. Because he will remind you that he has done it for you his scarred hands, and he will remind you till the day he returns with scarred hands, having been put up on that cross for you, that he has paid it all. And so it's just, it should just be a testimony of his grace. And that brings us to our last point for this morning. A fourth test of being a disciple, grace. We see here that grace arises when evil appears and sin crushes. See this in 30, verses 31 and 32. Jesus said to them, You will fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But verse 32 says, But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Notice there's great evil present here. You know, the evil of Jesus' betrayal by Judas and then on the cross by his own people. You know, the sin of his disciples as they fall away one by one, even Peter denying him three times publicly. And yet what does it say? Jesus will be raised up and he will go before them to Galilee. 
Jesus knows the full story. Just as he knows that Peter will deny him and the disciples will fall away, Jesus knows that he will be raised up and he will go before them. The grace of Jesus triumphs as the shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep takes his life back up again to gather them. He does defeat evil of betrayal as he is risen from the dead. He does overcome sin in the very place that he has sinned against by being put on the cross. He is paying the penalty for it. That is the greatest irony that the world has ever seen. That the greatest sin that you would put the Son of God to death on a cross is the very moment that he would pay for your sin. What a great and blessed irony that is this morning. There are two examples uh, in the Bible of the triumph of grace that I want to call your attention to this morning. The first is the example of Aaron, the high priest in Exodus 32 to 34. Many of you... uh, would have sort of got uh, in your reading, gotten through the book of Exodus after, you know, the Israelites had been saved out of Egypt and they sort of come through the Red Sea in this miraculous work of God's salvation and sort of come to Mount Sinai and God had come with fire and smoke and thunder and lightning and given his law to Moses and made this covenant with his people so that they would be his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And then the law is given to his people how to live rightly under his rule. And then right, sort of, you know, as we're going through the, the different laws, there's this moment when Moses is up the mountain and Aaron, the high priest, you know, he's kind of the second in command. He's the one who's supposed to be in charge of the sacrificial system, you know, making sure that if God's people sin, he you know, makes sure that something pays for their sin, an animal is sacrificed to pay for the sin, so they can live in right relationship with God. So Aaron's got a big job. And what's Aaron doing while Moses is up the mountain with God? He collects all the gold, uh, you know, jewellery from, the uh, from all the people, throws it into a fire and he says, out pops this golden calf, which we no one believes him, of course. He sort of fashioned a golden calf, probably, himself. And he says, before all the people put this golden calf up before them that they've just made with their hands and they said, this is your God that delivered you out of Egypt. I mean, what betrayal. What absolute betrayal of the God who saved them from the most terrible circumstances in Egypt, who delivered them through the greatest miracles that they'd ever seen, they'd even heard of. And yet they would be willing to worship something that they made with their own hands just because Moses wasn't there for 40 days and Aaron himself made it. What a devastating betrayal. I was having a conversation with um, uh, someone in the last couple of weeks about this, about this event. And he said to me, so like, why do you think God just didn't like just wipe out, like just knock off, um, Aaron, the high priest at that time. I mean, he was like leading the people astray. And I had to think about it. And I said, well, maybe it was so that the person who was supposed to be the high priest and make the sacrifices so that he would understand the grace and mercy of God himself personally as he mediated the grace and mercy of God to his people. Because you know what? Aaron should have died. For that 
for his betrayal. And yet he didn't. And he would have remembered that for the rest of his life. And yet you know what he would have remembered more? That God didn't do it. That God passed over his sins. Because you know, they just celebrated, right? The Passover. You know, the, the sacrificial lamb that was laid down for them. And of course, this is the moment we see in the text. This is the celebration of the Passover and Jesus is being a greater Passover where he would be the sacrificial lamb where God would be able to pass over the sins of his people because Jesus would lay down his life for his people. What a wonderful example of the triumph of grace. The second one, of course, is Peter himself. The chief denier of Jesus, three times. And this man became the chief preacher of God's grace. Then, this morning. It is in fact the very thing that you are most ashamed of in your life. It is the very thing that God desires to transform into the mark of grace in your life, to give you salvation without regret. You see, Peter would forever be known as the one who denied Jesus. And yet what did this do in him? It produced humility. And yet it is only because of this that Peter and Peter, that he knew personally with conviction what Jesus had done for him, that he was a changed man. And that is true for you and I this morning. The very things, a denial, the heart of betrayal, can be the very things that God shows the greatness of his forgiveness and grace in your life. And that is something that you can hold on to up into glory, which is a good thing. In response to this morning's sermon, uh, we're now coming to a time of communion. I invite our um, helpers to uh, come forward, please. Uh, we have a station on my left, my right, uh, down the back on the lower level, and I think there's one up the top uh, on the first floor as well. This morning... We come to remember what Jesus has done through this simple meal of bread and wine. Remember that Jesus, with his costly forgiveness, has paid it all. And so as you come this morning, as you come and you take the bread and you hold the cup, because we'll share the cup together at the end, Come remembering that whatever has happened in your life, Jesus has paid the cost and the price for it. And that is enough. If you've never turned to him, truly, if you've never known him in your heart, then before you go up, pray in your heart, call upon Jesus as Lord, risen from the dead, and ask his forgiveness and then come and receive and take part in this meal of celebration. This meal of celebration says we have salvation without regret. This meal of celebration says Jesus has done it. This meal of celebration worships the God who is willing to save those who would betray and deny him. So let me pray and then I'll invite you to come forward.
Lord God, as we consider these realities this morning, would you make it true in our hearts? Would you reveal what's really going on beneath the surface? And Lord, if we have not known you, but have professed to, would you save us? Come into our hearts this morning. If we have denied you, forgive us. For you have bled and died and risen again for our sins. Refresh us in your grace, the great news, Lord Jesus, of who you are and what you've done. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Please uh, come forward or, or to the nearest station to you. Take the bread, eat that in your own time. Go back to your seats and hold the cup and we'll share it together. We have a promise this morning that says, And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And the promise is that as we take this, we know that it will be a great day when we share in a new cup with our God and Lord Jesus Christ. Drink with me. 